Hello and welcome to Drake Art Diaries. Today I am going to be speaking to a very good friend of mine called Ella Caulfield, who has an extraordinary life story to tell us. I'm so much so, I'm going to do it in two parts. This first part is all about Ella's early life and the challenges she has had coping with sight loss. I don't want to tell you any more because there's some surprises along the way, but it really is a story of extraordinary positivity and endeavor. Enjoy. Welcome to Draycott Diaries. I'm delighted this morning to be talking to Ella Caulfield, uh, who is a friend of mine, who we've met through Guide Dogs. A very warm welcome to Draycott Diaries, Ella. Thank you very much. And Ella, you are also, as I was saying, a guide dog owner like myself. Yes, I am. Who is your dog and what, what is he or she called? My dog is called Rio. She is a five-year-old black Labrador cross retriever. And she's very beautiful. Yes. <laughs> and I also have a guide dog who is Jackie. Uh, Jackie is four years old and Jackie is a full black Labrador. How did you and myself and our two guide dogs meet? We bumped into each other fairly randomly in the car park of the Bath Arms, which is a local pub that we both frequent for coffees sometimes. And my mum spotted you from across the car park and said, ah, there's there's another black lab. And then spotted the flash that the guide dogs have on the lead and said, oh, it's another guide dog. So, of course, we had to come and say hello because it's not that often in our neck of the woods that we meet other guide dogs. So that's when we met. We had a chat for about five minutes and then I, d- I didn't think anything of it until probably a few months later, I'd started doing some volunteering for guide dogs. I'd received a donation and needed to pass it on and was put in contact with you. So again, we met up at the Bath Arms and we became friends from there. We did. So I think we can say unofficially the Bath Arms is our club. Yes, I suppose it is. Now, anybody listening to this does not need to be a genius to have worked out that if we both have guide dogs, we probably both have sight loss, do you think? Nah, yeah. (laughs) But... Ella, one thing I know is I have my story of how I lost my sight, which I, um, you and I both speak as an ambassadors for, for guide dogs. and we, So I know my story. Ella, would you mind telling Draycott Diaries and myself a little bit about your story and uh, how you lost your sight and what indeed living with sight loss means to you? I'm very happy to do that. So I was born fairly normally. Nobody thought anything was wrong. And then at about a year old, maybe 18 months when I was going to nursery, the nursery, nursery teachers noticed that I was a bit different. I'd look at things very close up compared to lots of other children. So they suggested to my parents that they get me checked out. At this point, we were living in, living in London. So they took me to our local hospital, who then referred me to Moorfields Eye Hospital. I was taken there for some tests And it was established that I was very short sighted because my eyes hadn't developed as they should. No one really knew why, but my eyes are more rugby ball shaped than football shaped. That was fine. And so from that point on, I wore glasses. And then aged four, again, for some unknown reasons, I suffered two retinal detachments in both eyes. I, as a four year old, probably didn't notice that there was anything particularly wrong. So hadn't said anything 
until we went to our local hospital, now down in Somerset, for just a checkup. And the doctor there told my mum to get me to the Bristol Eye Hospital as a matter of urgency, which she did. At the eye hospital, I had two operations over a couple of weeks to try and save the eyesight in both eyes. Unfortunately, they weren't able to save the sight in my left eye, but I did remain with the sight in my right eye. I was completely blind in my left eye from that point. No light perception at all, nothing, and I can't remember life before that. In my right eye, I was still extremely short-sighted. Font sizes that I could read would be like at least font size 20 or above. It had to be that. If I was watching the TV, I'd probably sit about a foot away from it to get a clear picture. I used magnifiers at school to read anything that wasn't printed large enough. Distance was always an issue for me. So seeing and playing with my peers in the playground wasn't always as easy for me as it would have been for others. But I just got on with it because I didn't know any different. And I think I have quite a positive outlook on life. And I needed to carry on because there was no point not carrying on. That level of vision was stable for the next 11 years until I was 15. I was in the final week of year 10 at school and I noticed a change in my vision. I was losing my peripheral vision in my right eye and wasn't sure what was going on. I thought I might have just have been tired and needed a break. It was the last week of the summer term. I told my parents and my parents decided that it would probably be a better idea to get it checked out. So we went up to the Bristol Eye Hospital and they confirmed that it was another retinal detachment in my right eye. So over that summer of 2015, I had several operations and they continued through into the beginning of 2016 to try and save what vision there might have been left. Unfortunately, they weren't able to do that. So I've been left with only a little bit of light perception in my right eye since then. And the light is only really there if it's very bright. So if I'm looking at the sun or directly into a light. And that's been the state of my vision for the last five years. It was a change. It was, I had to go through a learning curve after 2015. There were lots of things that I'd been reluctant to do when I was younger. I'd had support from the vision support team from County Council. They'd helped me with learning how to touch type and use computers. So I had all of that to back me up. But I was stubborn. I'd refused to learn Braille because I didn't see the use for it. But once I'd lost my sight, I did see the use for it. So I learned Braille over the summer of 2016 in the knowledge that I wanted a guide dog. I'd, I'd wanted a guide dog before I lost the rest of my sight because it was bad enough then. Over the summer of 2016, I learned to use a long cane, which is the cane that if you stand up, rests about your waist to walk around more independently because guide dogs suggest that having a bit of independent movement without a guide dog means that you will work better with a guide dog. And here we are today. I've come a long way in the past five years. I still have a lot to learn. I'm still effectively living at home at the moment. So I rely on my parents and my sister for a lot of help. But particularly in the last two years since getting my guide dog Rio, I've become far more independent and far more confident. Well, Ella, thanks for sharing that. I didn't actually, I didn't realise myself that the total loss of sight is really quite recent. So that really only happened about five years ago. Yes. Mm hmm. And how did that affect you emotionally? I find it difficult to say, I think. I'd like to say it didn't particularly affect me too much. I definitely had periods throughout the year following. I could probably go two weeks without crying and then I would have a complete breakdown. And I think that's how I coped with it, which possibly isn't the best way of coping with it. 
the following year from 2015 to 16 was my year 11, which is when I sat my GCSEs. And I like to think that having the stress of GCSEs kept me from thinking about the loss of sight. But at the same time, having to deal with the sight loss kept me from stressing about GCSEs. So I feel like I got through year 11 on adrenaline, which I think has stood me in quite good stead. I'm quite a determined person. So I feel like I might have ignored the emotional response to the sight loss. But in some ways, that's done me good because I've just been able to get on with things. It was interesting actually listening to you, Ella, because I think what you said about diversion, when I... Mm-hmm. had my diagnosis and recently um I had the the news because at the moment I've got 10 percent sight mm-hmm. so you know I feel very lucky in that respect but I recently had the results of a test which means I will lose my sight completely mm-hmm. and there's a lot of pressure actually I think on people who lose their sight you must have help you know you must have help you must emotionally you must mm-hmm. pour out your stuff but sometimes I think I'm I'm like you Ella I think I'm I would prefer to go down the diversionary tack yeah. and, you know, carry on with life as it is. I find it's, it's the diversionary tactics, but then also just talking to your friends and your family. They're the ones who see you in the day to day. They understand what you're going through. A professional therapist, psychologist, whatever, they might be able to tell you what's going on with your brain emotionally, but they can't support you in the long run. It's better to have supportive friends and family around you is what I've found. I I 100% agree, Ella. The only thing is I feel that I think one of the um, things I did was I didn't talk to family and I didn't talk to friends. I just decided that I kind of, oh, you know, I've had this fantastic career doing whatever and, I'm, you know, I, I wanted to deal with it myself. I think there are so many, many, many ways of dealing with it. But, Ella, this is about you, not about me. You carried on in mainstream school, didn't you? Yes. You didn't take the options of doing anything else. How does that work then, Ella? Because you now have pretty well no sight. How did it work in those last couple of years at school? Because you were taking some really important exams. I owe that completely to the learning support staff and teachers in general at my school. I attended the Kings of Wessex in Cheddar and they were totally amazing. I had talked with the vision support team teacher from the council that I'd been working with for years and years. She did suggest going to one of the specialist schools, but I was not up for doing that. I didn't want to leave the familiar environment. I didn't want to leave the friends I'd made. I didn't want to leave the teachers who had been so supportive to me already. I was I was already not in a normal situation. They still had to adapt things for me, but they definitely did go above and beyond. One specific learning support assistant who was particularly good at maths, which is the subject that I I was particularly keen on and have continued to do. I owe an awful lot to her. Without her, I don't think I would have been able to stay at the school. I would have had to go to a specialist school for the visually impaired. It was all about learning together, I found. No one knew exactly what needed to be done what I would need. County Council were very good about providing us with lots of equipment. So school had a Braille printer so that anything could be printed up in Braille for me. Once I had learnt Braille, which I did do, we had a machine that you could raise tactile diagrams. So we called it the toaster because apparently it looked a bit like a toaster. You'd draw on some special paper and then it would go into the machine, heat up and where the ink was, it would bubble up. 
so I could feel what was drawn out through year 11 and into sixth one where I stayed at King's. I had support in lessons. I would have a redescribed for lessons and also in exams. I think also the emotional support that they provided. Like I said, I could go two or three weeks strong and then suddenly have a bit of an emotional breakdown because something suddenly hit me and they were very good about helping me out with those times because occasionally it would happen at school. They were just great friends to me, were very supportive. And I think perhaps it was my determination to do it, but I just couldn't see myself going anywhere else. It was a good school for academics, which is what I wanted to do. And I felt very comfortable there and everyone was very supportive to me there. So I wanted to stay. And like I said, it was just a matter of working together to figure out what I needed and what was the best way to get around the new situation that I found myself in. I like to use the term renavigation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because a lot of people say, oh, well, how do you do this and how do you do that? And well, what does that happen? You know, and, and you can spend an a, enormous amount of time trying to explain to people. But I simply say to people, sight loss, renavigation. Give me a tool, give me a guide dog, give me the things I need to help me do the things I've always done. Yeah. We can do almost everything that. A sighted person can do, we just need to figure out how to do it in a slightly different way. 100%. But let's big you up for a minute, because I can't help but do that. What A-levels did you manage to get? And uh, where has that led you, Ella Caulfield? A-levels, I did maths, further maths and chemistry, and I also did history at AS level. In the end, I got an A in my history at AS level, A in my chemistry, an A in my further maths, and an A-star in my maths. And that's enabled me to get into Oxford University, where I am in my first year. I took a year out after my A-levels for a few reasons. I needed to retake some of my exams, or at least I wanted to, to improve my grade, but also to spend a bit of time with Rio, who I'd only just got, and just generally become a bit more independent. Like I said, I'd lost my sight in 2015. I spent the next three years focusing on exams basically half probably because I wanted to half possibly as an avoidance tactic for ignoring sight loss but I spent a year at home just kind of living my life which has stood me in good stead now for having come away to university as a far more competent and independent person. Okay now Ella let's unpack the Oxford bit Okay. because this will have been the first time you have been away from home. Yes pretty much. You've got pretty well no sight whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I would I would say totally off the sight. Yep. You have a guide dog. Yes. And you are pitching up at the most famous university probably in the world. One of them. How's that feel? Amazing, nerve wracking, scary at times, but it's been an absolutely amazing experience. I absolutely love it. I feel like I've become an even more independent person in terms of the academic side. I I found it tricky but it wouldn't be university if it wasn't. It's really enjoyable to do. In the more social side, I've made lots of new friends. All the people are lovely and helpful. Working with Rio, Rio has really stepped up to the plate. She became a bit, probably too much of a pet dog when she was at home for a year, but having on to Oxford and being without my parents around, she has really made the difference in making me independent. I'm able to get to lectures every morning. I'm usually with friends just because that's how we roll. But if I need to do it on my own, I know I could trust Rio to do it. Living, I can't say it's been easy, but I've enjoyed it. I do have a lot of support, so I don't have to cook. I'm in catered accommodations. 
have somebody to help me with laundry and things like that. So I'm not having to worry about a big bag of laundry with Rio and whatever obstacles might be in the way. So that's that's all been good for me. Um, Ella, one of the things I think is a myth about guide dogs is that they are mind readers. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, they are when it comes to where the food's stored. Yeah. But that's to- that's totally a different question. But at Oxford, she won't have known where everything was. So did you go, uh, we call them GDMIs, but just for those who are listening, that's basically our guide dog trainers of, who we all have one of those who look after us and our dog. Did they come with you to Oxford in advance so that you could get used to the routes? Yes, yeah, so I did have. I did have some training in Oxford before. So the the summer before I went up, so last summer, I actually met a, a guide dog instructor from the Reading team who cover Oxford, whereas my home instructor is from Exeter. So we worked on the main routes that I'd have to do, which is from the college accommodation where I live to my department there so I can go to lectures. And then we also covered to go to a couple of the local supermarkets. So I'd have those to do. And we also did a big lot of orientation around the college. So I'm I'm at Merton College so that I could get everywhere from my accommodation to the common room, to the libraries, to the the hall where we eat, to a few of the key places so that I could get around independently without having to worry about whether somebody could be there to help me out. And so I did most of college with my cane before I used Rio. And then out and about in the city, I worked with Rio because I don't think there's much chance I'd ever go out with just the cane. I don't feel as confident with that. So I wouldn't feel as safe doing that. So that was over the summer. And I got those routes pretty much locked in. And then the first term in the autumn, I was fairly confident. Like I said, I spend most of the time going to and from lectures with friends. So I was never having to do it on my own, which meant that I could become even more confident to the point that now I probably could do them on my own if I had to. Yeah, there's practicalities in this as well, aren't there, which I think people tend to forget, because I remember you mentioning two facts to me when you first came home, was one that, you know, this is totally practical stuff. Rio going to the loo, as we call it in our our language, spend. Rio, I believe, threw up in one of your lectures, <laughs> uh, which I know was a famous point. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that I remember you saying, you know, on a route that you do every day to the college, that suddenly was some building work. Yeah. And suddenly you had to negotiate obstacles because it's all well and good teaching routes, but that's on the understanding that some workman isn't going to come and place a bag of cement. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that, because, you know, these are real issues as a guide dog owner, which I think people sometimes have this, as I said, this rather kind of halo view of, of working with a dog. Yeah. But it isn't always that straightforward, is it? No. So with the spending issue, so going to the toilet, I've been quite lucky again. My college very kindly have set up what we call a spending pen. So just a little fenced off area, which is directly behind the building that I live in. So it's just kind of I know that I need to go 10 steps out to the right, 20 steps down to the back to get to the to get to the fenced off area. And I can let Rio go into there. She'll do her business, come back out. And then one of the gardeners every couple of days will go in there and clear it up, which is very useful. Rio is a little bit funny about going to the toilet when she's still on the lead. So it would be very difficult for me to give her a good spending routine while at the same time being able to clear up her business by myself. So having the college's support in doing that is 
very much appreciated. There was an occasion where she was poorly. I was in a tutorial with one of my tutors and um, another student, and I heard Rio. I thought she was eating something off the floor. Turned out it was going the other way. <laughs> but my tutor and my friend were very, very helpful to kind of get it all cleared up. The the issue with building work, yeah, that can be a big issue. There's lots of narrow pavements and cobbledy streets, so there's lots of trip hazards. If worst came to worst, I would just drop Rio's harness and I'd take a friend's elbow. I really do want to acknowledge Oxford because not not that you've got the exams, which is obviously is extraordinary, since I didn't even get O levels. Um, <laughs> and not the, just the fact that you're going to Oxford, but the fact that you went blind in your area. Your friends and your family were with you as you went blind. So this is the first time it's taken the out of context where it's taken you and your guide dog and dropped you. Yes. In an area where people didn't have that experience. Mm-hmm where it's the first full-on time where you go, well, right, okay, I'm a blind woman in a sighted world with a guide dog where people haven't been with me on that journey. Yes. That's what I was referencing about how challenging that must have been for you. Um, I think at the beginning it was. I, I was nervous, definitely nervous, and it did take a little while for me to get comfortable, but there were lots of people who were supportive. I was set up with a buddy, a guy in second year, who was responsible for kind of ensuring that I got everywhere that I needed to be in the first week or so they they ensured that kind of I was able to make friends I wasn't left in my room on my own and it meant that I could I could socialize as much or as little as I wanted to and I made some good friends in that first week I could explain to them as much as my story as I wanted to and I said to them just ask questions if you have if you wonder about something if you want to know how I do something just ask because it's better that they know the truth from me rather than some not necessarily falsehood but something that isn't quite appropriate from the media from the internet they need to know my personal experiences to be able to support me in any way whatsoever so I have to be very grateful to the friends that I made in the first few weeks and the friends that I've made in the first two terms that I've been there for being supportive and being helpful and understanding and giving me the support that I needed and, and working things out because not all of them got it right first time. And why would they? Yes, they, they needed to adapt. I needed to adapt. Like we said, I, I lost my sight. I was surrounded by friends and family who, who'd known me for all or most of my life so they knew how I did things already they they knew that I was going to adapt a little bit but I'd still do things pretty similarly and going away to Oxford I was in a completely new situation with completely new people which is nerve-wracking enough for anyone going away to university living alone for the first time so having to deal with their own anxieties along with getting to be friends with somebody with sight loss was something that they had to adapt to as much as I had to adapt to um, Ella, do you go to posh dinners and wear a black multiple and all that and gowns? You know, because Oxford, I always think of Hogwarts. Yes, at my college, it's one of the more traditional ones. So they frequently do what's called formal halls, which is where you you sit in you sit in the halls, which are set up a bit like the the Hogwarts Great Hall in the Harry Potter movies, and you get served a three course dinner. The food at my college is very nice. For those formal halls, you have to wear your your black gown. It's called a commoner's gown when you first start. You can get more fancy gowns in later years. But I also have just my normal meals in that same room. So it's an amazing place to be in. My mum and my aunt and a friend of my mum's have come up to have formal hall over the 
terms I've been here and they've been very amazed at just the atmosphere you get and the respect that we show the tutors when they come in and leave and that they say a Latin grace before the meal is served. It's just, it's an absolutely amazing experience. I went to quite a fancy dinner earlier this term. I'm part of the church bell ringing society at the university because it's an activity that I've done at home for a few years and I wanted to carry on. And they hold a fancy dinner every year for lots of old members, so alumni of the university to come back and have a bit of a social and do a bit of bell ringing over the weekend. And I went to a very fancy dinner at another college. And that was an amazing, an amazing meal to have with lots of lots of different people. And in a new hall, which my friends described to me was, I think I think it's a newer hall than the one at my college, but still was magnificent. Ella, it sounds to me like all you do is eat. That's a significant amount. Yeah. I mean, I... I don't know how you fit lectures in. Just sounds like you go. To, just sounds like you go and eat. Now, my question is: Does Rio come to these posh dinners, and does she have to wear a, a posh harness? Uh, well, no, she she does come to the dinners. So when you start at Oxford University and Cambridge and Durham, I think as well, you have what's called a matriculation ceremony, which is where you become a member of the university. And for that, you have to wear the subfusk, which is it's a white a white shirt and then black trousers or skirt and then the the gown that you wear and you take your mortarboard with you but you're not actually allowed to wear it until you graduate and we did consider getting Rio a gown to wear but we we didn't get round to it so I think once we do get to graduation she will have a gown to wear oh yeah <laughs> which will be quite cute I think but Rio's very good when we go into hall I I usually sit at the end of a table so she can she can kind of sit down by my feet and she's fairly out of the way so yeah she's very good she'll often look over the table with puppy dog eyes well, according to my friends at least there's a benefit of being blind that you can't see their puppy dog eyes yeah absolutely and it's also a negative because they're working your friends <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah Rio has more friends than I do I swear at university I would say to people, I'm now just a thing at the end of a lead. Yeah. My identity has completely gone. I am just a walking person behind a gorgeous guide dog. Yeah, lots of people say hello to Rio before they say hello to me. But <laughs> <laughs> but Ella, let's talk about the future. So we, came, we did touch on it before. What happens after Oxford? The future. I've always said that I'd stay in education for as long as I possibly could. So I might do postgraduate work do a PhD or something um beyond that I'm not certain I've thought about teaching just because I I enjoy passing on knowledge in the year that I spent at home I went back into school and did some volunteer kind of tutor tutoring mentoring so possibly teaching I'm doing a maths degree and having a science and maths degree is very popular with lots of employers I will see what comes my way well, wherever you go, you'll you'll obviously be brilliant. Ella, thank you so much. You have been star. It's been really nice to talk to you because when we go to the bath arms, it's always noisy and inevitably Jackie, my guide dog, is trying <laughs> to get a crumb off the floor. So even though we've been talking remotely today, it's, it's been a joy. So Ella, from me as part of Draycott Diaries, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, Ella. That was an extraordinary version of the first half of your life. And you have so much ahead of you. We are so proud to call you friends. 
Don't forget, everybody, that part two will be available on July the 14th. That will be myself and Ella talking as fairly new guide dog owners about the trials and tribulations of living with an unpredictable navigation tool. I hope you'll enjoy that. But I must thank Jeff Farney for editing this programme, to my brother for the music, and of course, as the voice, I am Tiggy Trathawan. We look forward to rejoining with you again on July the 14th. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.